Hi, this is Bob Murphy, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. I'm Norman Horn, president of the Libertarian Christian Institute. Today, I am joined by Doug Stewart, Jason Rink, and Nick Gausling. Today, we want to have a roundtable discussion, as it were, about patriotism in the life of the Christian. This is the first time in a few episodes where all four of us have been present to discuss some topics near and dear to our hearts, so we are excited to jump in and get started. I'd like to thank all of you who have sent in questions over the years, and especially in recent weeks, about the question of God and country. We know that it's a very popular theme and a very important theological issue to grapple with. We hope that our conversation today will shed light on how to think about patriotism, but we also hope that whatever you walk away with, it is not what to believe about being patriotic. As with many things, patriotism can be deeply personal, and we each have to be comfortable in our own consciences what we feel is crossing the line. For those of you who may have been listening for the first time, we invite you to go back and listen to our previous episodes. While generally there's no reason you have to listen to them in order, our episode with Keith Giles, author of Jesus Untangled, is similar to this topic and may be of particular interest if you want to learn more. If you'd like to reach out to us and ask a question or submit some feedback, you can reach us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com, as well as on Facebook, Twitter, and of course our website, libertarianchristians.com. So let's get started by asking just a brief question. Why is this issue of God and country important for Christians to think about? If the point of the Christian life is to ultimately learn to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves, and then we need to be thinking constantly about ways in which uh, we live our lives going about honoring God in all of the things that we do. And we need to evaluate the way that we treat others and the way we understand other things that, we, that are, are present throughout our lives. And if libertarianism is right about the nature of the state, that it is a destructive and violent institution, then perhaps what, we, what it means to love our country must account for this assessment. If we're supposed to love God uh, more than everything else, and if we're supposed to love our neighbor of ourselves, how does loving our country factor into that at all? Well, we've been getting a lot of questions about patriotism over the years, and if you look back on libertarianchristians.com over the course of its nearly eight-year history at this point, uh, you'll find plenty to say about what we think about uh, the nature of state action and about the nature of violence as it is perpetrated by the state. But how then do we think about the people uh, that we live around, our culture and the country that that makes up? How does love of country factor into loving God first and foremost? And then how, do we, how does it factor into loving others? And there's a lot of practical implications for how this might work out. Things like how do we treat the Pledge of Allegiance or the National Anthem or military service? Or what, about, what do we think about having uh, elements of, of – uh, state emblems in a worship service. Is that a good idea or is it not? And so we want to talk about a bunch of these things as we go uh, throughout this discussion. 
And so, you know, one of the things I, I, I want to rem- uh, make sure that you guys know about is that a few years ago, uh, Jason Rink here, who will be speaking in just a moment, uh, did a, a really interesting presentation on statism as religion. And you can find a video of this on our, uh, on our YouTube channel. This was done at the first ever Christians for Liberty conference. Uh, we'll make sure and link to it in the show notes, but I definitely recommend that you take a look at that. Because it's interesting that, you know, we live in a country now that has a, a tremendous amount of power. The state has a, obviously has a tremendous amount of power, and this is something we criticize all the time. And it's interesting to think about that this state that we live in claims the power to, for instance, birth you, educate you, raise you from childhood, give you a job, provide you with health care, make sure that your food's okay, that you have decent drugs. They make sure that, that of course, certain drugs don't get to you uh, or things, <laughs> things of that nature. It can provide your money. It can provide you food. It can even bury you if you really want to. It, and in many respects, it claims more power than God himself wants to claim often in scripture. But uh, it doesn't have to be this way, and we what we want to do tonight is talk a lot about about these issues. So, Jason, what do you think? Where are we going to start about, off as uh, statism as religion? This is something that just really became clear to me at some point, where I started to recognize that in the church, when I would question certain participation in national. Uh, sacraments, which is what I call them now, but participate in certain things that good citizens were supposed to participate in and coming from sort of the religious right or, you know, the Baptist Republican conservative sort of wing of Christianity before I became a libertarian Christian. um, The idea that you were supposed to participate in these things was, was really, it, you were made to feel like it was part of your Christian duty, sort of, of being a citizen in a in a country. And so the more I started to look at what was really happening, the more I started to see how really certain attributes of God were being replaced or taken on by the state. So you could go through scripture and think about all these attributes of God, of God being, you know, omnipotent and omnipresent and all powerful and and just and, uh, you know, holy and all of these different things. And while it might sound ridiculous to be like, well, who who claims that the state has any of those attributes of God? Well, I think people actually just sort of subconsciously can, you know, put them on. And so this idea of, of the state being all powerful. And so uh, we as Christians would support like the military power of the state to, you know, carry out and, you know, defend and institute democracies around the world. And then this idea of justice goes hand in hand with that, you know, God is just and well, the state is just. And so, you know, we're going to trust the state to punish evildoers. Uh, We're going to trust that when uh, our government goes to war overseas, that we're killing bad guys. And so, you know, we know that uh, our our country is engaged in these kind of good things. And so I just started to see how these these attributes of God were sort of being attributed to the state or to the government or the, to the country. And, 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 and really, I know we're going to get into this a little bit later, but there's really a problem of definition here too, because what does it mean when we talk about America and our country and, and those type of things and being patriotic? 
And so the more that I dove into this, the more I realized, well, wait a minute, we're actually surrounded by sort of these religious sacraments or practices or things that are normally attributed to religion that you can attribute to the state. So you look at things like the flag and that's, you know, like a sacred symbol, you know, it shouldn't be desecrated and, and you shouldn't um, do anything to like, you know, harm the flag. And then we have these sacred texts, you know, as Christians, we have the Bible and like here in the United States, it's like these sacred texts, it's like the constitution and it's, you know, uh, Supreme court rulings. And then we have these different statist saints, you know, Mount Rushmore is carved with the faces of our saints or the Lincoln Memorial has, you know, these sainted individuals who we revere uh, in this statist society. And then, you know, you just look, you look all through it. It's like, you've got these temples, these places where all these people gather and do this statist work. And it's, you know, the Capitol or it's Capitol buildings in different states that like are these ornate places that almost look like churches. And then even when you get into like the different political parties, you know, they're really just denominations. Republicans and Democrats and Libertarians are just political denominations that argue over these different things. Uh, so, you know, all of these things started to surface for me. And I even thought about where the doctrines of statism are taught, you know, and it's, it, they're taught in the churches of the public school system. And, and uh, the public school teachers are, are the pastors and the ones that sort of teach the religion of statism to young minds. And then finally, you know, I think the further you go down, you realize that the state also, like old religions of uh, the pagan era, they, they demand uh, human sacrifices. And that's what happens, you know, uh, lives are given in military conquest to protect the nation and to protect the state and for all of these different, different reasons. And so, and, and really, when you look at uh, where people land on some of the military interventionism and conquest and this idea that any life given in service of the country in the military is worthy and not to be questioned and was defending some uh, high principle. Um, I think that, you know, again, that's just really human sacrifices being laid down at the altar of the religion of state in many, many cases. And so I know that's controversial, but that's, that's what it looks like. And, and when you start to question or, you know, attack somebody's position on how they feel about country and state and government, people tend to get very, very defensive. And Many times the evidence that you've encroached on somebody's religion is how defensive they get when you start to um, like press into that and, and, and ask them, well, what's really going on there? Uh, people get very defensive about that. But uh, so, so I think that statism is a religion. I think in the United States, uh, the worship of government and country is an idol that is challenging um, you know, allegiance to Jesus. And I think that the testimony of the evangelical church in the United States, most people are going to say, yeah, those are the people that are conservative Christians. Yeah, they want to do moral things and they want to change laws to make our country more like a Christian nation. That's going to be a more common response than like, 
those are the people that live like Jesus. And I think that's that's really evidenced by that. But, uh, you know, Doug, I think what's important really to really get this conversation going is to define some terms because we throw around terms like country and government and state and nation. And I think unless we're really on the same page talking about, well, what do we mean with those different terms? Is the country the government? Is the country the people? Is it an idea? What is it? So, Doug, do you have some thoughts about that? Yeah, Jason, I think it's a an important thing to wrestle with because there's a there's probably someone listening right now who is thinking, yeah, that's not the way I see my country. That's not the way I see my government. I have a, you know, I I look at it differently. And yet, all those things that you listed, the state demands its its allegiance. It really does compete with what does it look like to be allegiant to only Jesus? So the fundamental question we're dealing with is, is it okay as a Christian to love our country? And if so, then what does it mean to even say, I love my country? What is What do we mean by my country? You know, people ask if you're patriotic. Well, that sounds like something that you would feel. Do you feel, you know, warm and fuzzy feelings about your country? Well, you know, a lot of us kind of feel that about a lot of things. And, you know, patriotism is one of those, is, is just the manifestation of that for our country. Does that mean we have warm and fuzzy feelings about the government? Even people who are highly patriotic probably don't, wouldn't say they have warm and fuzzy feelings about the government. So, you know, one way to define patriotism would be things, something like this, a pride of place and a love for the people who live in that place, a pride of place and a love for people who live there. So, you know, if you define it that way, I could say, well, what's what's so harmful about that? Uh, because, you know, if that's what we're working with as a definition, it's pretty proper for a Christian to respond because God has created place. He's created time and space, and all of God's activity takes place where we are. Uh, God meets us here on earth. There are things that are special and sacred about the place that we live in. If you have grown up in an area that you look fondly of, or you you think back fondly of in your you know maybe your childhood or you visited places that you have just been awed and wondered about you might think hmm I really love this there's nothing wrong with that there's nothing wrong with meeting people loving community we can't escape the conditions of our making because everything that has to do with god has to do with place where we are jesus seemed to have a you know a sense of pride for and love for Israel. You know, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem because he said, I wish you knew the things that made for peace. If Jesus didn't care about people around him, he didn't just care about this principle of peace. He did, of course, in that in one sense, but he also cared that people actually loved one another. And so, you know, if Jesus weeps, you're, he's only going to be moved emotionally if he actually loves the people who are around him. So, you know, in the one sense, I'd say, sure, it's okay to be patriotic, but you have to be careful because if we say we love our country, well, I could say that I love people around me, but what does that mean about the government? That's really where the question gets a little, a little fuzzy, to use that word in a, in a slightly different way. So, does it mean that we love everything that our government does? I don't think so, because I think people who are the most patriotic are ones who would actually challenge and question the government. So on the one hand, while it's okay to really love the place that we live and think fondly of the communities we live in, maybe even our county or our state or, of course, even our country, 
there are of course limits to what that means and one of the things we have to realize is god loves all the nations of the earth we're not special just because we were born here that's sort of it's a little bit arbitrary to say oh well i was born here so i should love my country well yeah and then you should also apply that same principle to anybody else and they should love you know the country that they live in um and they should love the country that they live in as well so we have to remember god loves all the nations on the earth and so we lose sight of jesus as lord of the whole earth if we focus on you know god and country and we think of god you know specifically blessing america I can understand why Americans would look around and say, wow, I really love this place. And I think there's an appreciation for where God has placed us, where, and, and I don't mean where God has placed us, I mean any individual where you can say, all right, this is where God has me, and I am going to love those around me, and I'm going to appreciate those around me. And one thing that can be really dangerous to do is to confuse the good news of Jesus, which is what we advocate as Christians, the gospel, with the what might some people might call the good news of America. You know, there have been presidential candidates like Reagan, and I think even uh, George W. Bush saying, you know, America's a city on the hill. And, you know, we kind of apply these platitudinal scripture passages that, that sound good to our country, but really those things are about, about the church and about the people who follow Jesus. So there's the good news of Jesus, and then there is... Again, what some people might say is the good news of America, and they say, well, God has really blessed our country, and look how much we've flourished in the past, you know, 250 years, and, and you know, is, isn't God working to bless America, and shouldn't we really appreciate that? Well, yeah, but what else would you expect than blessing that people who generally have freedom to cooperate, compete in the market, get together and uh, create great things together they're peacefully interacting for the most part commerce happens what else would you expect but progress and prosperity i wouldn't necessarily say that yeah that's god's blessing other than they're following sort of god's maybe you could call it god's prescription for human flourishing is that we are able to peacefully trade and better ourselves but outside this and I don't think it's this sort of like God-blessed American settlers and the people who are now still here in the same way that God you know, was with Israel marching into the Promised Land or anything like that. I would definitely say that that's out of bounds in terms of why is, you know, why is America blessed, why are we wealthy, and so forth. And then there's obviously the mixed history where you know, we have slavery and we have all kinds of other issues that that we can deal with, but by and large, we've prospered because we are a peaceful nation, or the people within the nation have peacefully exchanged and traded and and made ourselves better in that regard. So that's just kind of the way I think of patriotism. I don't. It can be harmful. It. Um, I I love my country in that regard, and in, in all the ways that I just said. But that can get a little dangerous if we let it go a little bit too far. You know, Doug, you mentioned Reagan, and a few years ago, I mean, I, I actually used to be in uh, a leadership role within the Republican Party a number of years ago, and one time I was able to bring in my pastor to give the uh, invocation at a, at a central committee meeting, which if anyone who's familiar with how political parties work uh, might might recognize that's actually a communist term, which for some hilarious reason has been adopted by the 
Democratic and Republican parties. That should tell us something. Anyway, so we were at this meeting. I arranged for him to give the invocation, and I had mentioned to him before, I said, you watch, there's going to be some of these people. It was, it was actually an election night for party officers. I said, there's going to be some people that are going to get up, and they're going to cite Ronald Reagan and say, Reagan said America is a city on a hill. And I said, just, just watch how they misappropriate Jesus' words and attribute them to Reagan. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. And he came up to me afterwards, and he goes, wow, I had no idea that that was like a thing that just Republicans do. It is they just quote Reagan as saying America is a city on a hill. And it's just, it's laughable for anyone who knows the Bible with, with any you know, amount of familiarity. So, you know, the, when you read like early American literature and history, like from the, 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 the colonists, the early colonists at, at Plymouth and Massachusetts Bay, yeah, lots of, of problems with how they went about implementing their societal organization. They were, they were fundamentally trying to build a government around Old Testament law. And there's a lot of issues I would contend with that, but that's something that we may tackle in a future episode here on the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Nevertheless, they saw Christians and the church as kind of being indistinguishable from the body politic. So when they sought out to make America a city on a hill, in kind of that original context that Reagan was pulling from, what they really meant was this is a group of Christians who are getting together to be a, a manifestation of the church in the world, to do something to shine forth the light of Christ to the world. Now, whatever hermeneutic or exegetical issues we may take with that interpretation, the point was it was explicitly tied to the church and to Christians being a light to the world. And it's been completely misappropriated to refer to the United States government as the light of the world, which is really just a, a blasphemous reappropriation. Another thing we have to consider is when we're reading the Bible, like what is a nation? So we, we're using a lot of different terms here, like nation and country and state and government. And what we refer to as a country today is kind of a hybrid of the nation and the government, right? So it's a people group in a geographic territory with certain political structures and governing structures like a constitution or British common law or you know what have you based on the particular country. But that's kind of a foreign concept to the ancient world and to Second Temple Judaism and the Mediterranean, the Greco-Roman world. They understood things as like there were kingdoms and there were states, but the nation, which is really where the culture came from, referred to the people, the heritage and the history of the people, not really the country or the government but really more the people group. And so when, we, uh, when, you, when you're reading the New Testament, and depending on your translation, sometimes you'll see the word nations, and other times you'll see the word Gentiles, but it's the same word. It, because to the Jews of that time, the nations were anyone who was outside of covenant Israel. It was all the people groups who weren't in covenant with Yahweh. That was the nations, the Gentiles. 
So it wasn't a reference to country so much as we think of it today, as it was to ethnic groups and cultures outside of Judaism. And then you fast forward to the book of Revelation and you see this phrase, God, you know, God is calling forth a people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. And those terms are supposed to be taken kind of synonymous. The tribe, the, the, the tongue, the language, the nation is all kind of referring to the same thing. And those are terms that don't really connotate to the country, uh, but they refer to the people group. And so in that sense, you know, there really is no clear biblical basis for saying Christians must, you know, support and defend the country in the modern 21st century kind of sense of it. There is, however, a sense in which it is perfectly acceptable to have a kinship with the people who you have a common culture with. So, like one of you guys mentioned earlier, you know, Christ uh, weeping over Jerusalem. And so, I mean, another example we can see of that is actually in, in Romans 9, where Paul is talking about the Jews. So, you know, when you, when you read the New Testament, you know that Paul actually wanted to be an apostle to the Jews, but God uh, assigned him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And that's not what he expected. But nevertheless, he still felt a strong kinship for his fellow Jews, and he wanted them to know the Messiah. And that really comes out in emotional terms in Romans uh, chapter 9. Well, I just wanted to say something real quick. They don't really misappropriate Jesus' words to the state so much as they misappropriate Jesus' words to the Messiah of the Republican Party, which is Ronald Reagan. That's, so, yeah, that's, that's... No, I mean, I'm not <laughs> correcting you. I'm just like, again, Ronald Reagan's the Messiah of the Republican Party. I think that's Party. a fair point to make. I think that's a great example of, of the fact that it is very natural for people who are enthralled with the government to want to put things like the light of the world or city on a hill and those phrases that the Jesus used for his followers and apply that to the state. Think about this. We have Jesus is Lord as a phrase throughout the early church, which was a way of subverting the language of the government, which is Caesar is Lord. And so now we have the state saying, no, 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 we're going to take that back and we're going to we're going to be the city on the hill. There's a natural tension there, which goes back to what Jason said earlier in the episode, that the state wants for itself what is rightfully God's. And there's this tension back and forth. There's this tug back and forth for who is the light of the world? Who's the city on a hill? No, it's going to be us. We're America. We're going to be the city on the hill. Well, I mean, hey, if you want to act like Jesus as as a nation, well, that's fine. But that's a whole other story that we can talk about. What does it mean to be a quote-unquote Christian nation? That's a whole other topic. But and if you want to be the kind of country that looks out for, you know, those who are being oppressed and so forth, you know, again, another topic, but that's one thing. But the idea here is that the state is wanting for itself what is rightfully Jesus's, and that is to be Lord over our lives. And I I think that is just evidence again that that there's a that it's very dangerous to be loving one's country and include with that the things that the country's government does. 
in addition, I'd like to call your attention to something that, you know, we've brought this up or in various ways all, you know, throughout the history of libertarianchristians.com. And one of the things that I've argued for quite a while on actually is that, you know, the origin of the state is ultimately in rebellion against God. So in a sense, what I, what I want to point out here is that like, this isn't something that's just unique to America or something to that effect and unique to the, you know, to the U S federal government. Uh, in, in effect, this is something that's a problem from the beginning of statism period. The origins of the human government itself are in rebellion against God. And, uh, and that goes back to the tower of Babel. And we can look through history and we see, you know, God kings that are that are uh, that are raised up um, amongst uh, um, amongst nations, and you see that you know many kings tried to take upon themselves the fact that they were they were like gods incarnate at the time, uh, and and to an effect that like, there's an there's a lot of anthropological stuff you can look at in that in there as well that the origins of the state are in sacred violence, and this is a uh, you know harkening back to people scholars like Rene Girard talking about how. Uh, the origin of the state and of sacred violence and how to pres- preserving the culture was sur- was surrounded around scapegoating uh, a, a high uh, a high figure who they could essentially place blame and and uh, and and establish the social order around. Uh, that's all part of the same system that tries to put something up in place of God that will provide for their for their for their good and that they can even blame when things go poorly. Uh, so this is this has a, a lot of implications, really, for the way that we look at the world itself, uh, because of how the state plays such an important part in our lives. Once we begin to realize how insidious uh, this kind of meme is that 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 the state itself it, it takes upon its uh, it takes upon itself aspects of godship, uh, you begin to kind of t- peel away at the layers of how it lies. And and continues to to take to take the place of as an idol in our lives, and this is something that Christians need to be constantly on guard against. And it's, in effect, it's kind of like the state is now, in many respects, of the same form and function as the household idols of ancient Israelites, whereas they were supposed to be following Yahweh all the time, and yet they still maintain their household idols uh, so frequently. And you, as you see in Judges and and the and throughout the history books of the Old Testament. One thing we want to discuss here before we jump into the practical considerations of of being patriotic or not being patriotic is the whole phrase, love it or leave it. Libertarians are known for not only being contrarians, but we kind of raise hell a little bit about politics and we want to change things dramatically. There's a lot of people saying, well, you know, if you just don't like if you don't like the way things are, then why don't you just leave? I read a quote once by a person who was actually speaking out of, out of a different country saying, well, I don't want to live, you know, in our context it would be this. I don't want to live in a different country. I want to live in a different America. I want to see America get better. And by America get better, what we really mean when we say something like that is I want to see the people around me flourish. I want to see them have more freedom. We want to see human flourishing. So, the love it or leave it kind of thing is it's just like really every anybody could say that they don't love their country at any given moment for any particular reason and we can also say the on the flip side wow i really love my country right now like at any given moment we'd just be like you know love it or leave it i think the phrase love it or leave it is more emotionally driven and not 
really thought through very much because the people who want to change the country, I mean, if you think of people just like Martin Luther King Jr., he loved his country. He didn't just want to leave. He wanted to change it. So we want to live in a better society, not a different one. So we've discussed a lot about the various theological considerations that we've that we encounter when we think about what it means to have love of country, to be a patriot of some on some level. What other practical considerations do we need to bring to bear and and kind of discuss and work through a little bit? What are some of the things that come to your mind when you think about what I don't know what what does it mean practically to love my country? What, is, what sort of things might come up as controversial in the circles that you run in? For instance, one might be, what do we do with the Pledge of Allegiance? How do we deal with that? You know, personally, I, I've really started to struggle with the Pledge of Allegiance from really this is the title of it, like the Pledge of Allegiance. And I started to think about what am I pledging my allegiance to? And I started to think about whether or not I could pledge my allegiance to two diametrically opposed things or for for something that I would say, well, well, if I'm pledging my allegiance to the U.S. government, well, that's a problem. If I'm pledging it to my country, what does that mean? Sort of the things we've talked about. And then after I made the film Nullification, I had trouble with pledging to allegiance to something that I would say is indivisible when I clearly didn't believe that was the case. And I started to become somewhat of a secessionist or a federalist, seeing that there was an idea that uh, separating from other states and seceding from the union could be a, a possible thing. So what I started doing was I stopped saying indivisible. I would say the Pledge of Allegiance. And uh, then when it came to indivisible, I'd just be like, mm. And then I'd say the rest of it. And then finally, I stopped saying it all together. Uh, finally, I stopped standing for it. And, um, you know, I think my son doesn't do it anymore now. So I think I've actually made a, a disciple in that way. But yeah, so the Pledge of Allegiance, I think, was was the start of me sort of taking a stand against this. Jason, I kind of have a similar experience to you. I sort of walked through that same broad trajectory in my in my own thinking and you know, one of the interesting things about the Pledge of Allegiance is that most most people who are saying it uh, don't understand even the historical background from whence it came. So you just referenced uh, secession and basically the divisibility of the Union. For people who have studied early American history and the the intent of the framers of the Constitution, again, for whatever that's worth, we're just making a historical point here— the idea was that the states were compacting together in a, in a voluntary union for their collective benefit. But no one, other than perhaps Alexander Hamilton and the monarchists, would have understood this to be this indivisible union. They saw it as something that was you know, a, a voluntary agreement for their mutual benefit. And the Civil War came along and totally changed the narrative through force. And it's in the aftermath of the Civil War that the Pledge of Allegiance came about and added in this concept of indivisibility, one uh, indivisible United States as a singular entity. And today, to even question that, to talk about 
could the United States break apart? And might that be desirable in some sense? That used to just be a forbidden topic. I mean, people would think you're crazy. And the, I mean, the humorous thing is now the left is talking about this now all of a sudden in the aftermath of Donald Trump getting elected where there's this huge movement for California to secede from the union. And boy, I'm praying that that succeeds. And actually recently uh, in the aftermath of the the triggering of Brexit, we just saw news the other day. Uh, and by the time this posts, this will have been a few weeks out, but Jean-Claude Juncker, who's the uh, a, a high-ranking official, he's one of the presidents of the European Union, uh, said, you know, in retaliation for uh, Trump and the Americans influencing Brexit, uh, I'm now going to come over and try to break apart the United States. And this, there were some libertarians who were then <laughs> I saw on social media going, wow, this would be really fantastic. Please, Mr. Juncker, come help us. Uh, and not not to be flippant about it, but I mean, the, the point is we're dealing with a the, this behemoth state that is not the nation. It's not the spirit of America. I mean, what we've discussed here in this in this dialogue is that America is the people and the culture and the tradition. And it's not that everything about that is necessarily good because it isn't, but there's a lot of stuff about it that that is good. And it's not because of the government. So if the government starts to break apart, Lord willing, peacefully, uh, then that doesn't mean that America ceases to exist. It means that the state, which is separate from the nation, is starting to break apart, decentralize, privatize, what have you. And that could actually be a great thing for the flourishing of America. And it's probably, I would argue, the going to be the same in any oversized nation state of which there are uh, a number in the world today. I think it's worth mentioning that when you say that you love your country and you tie it to a sort of a geopolitical boundary like you're mentioning here, it's a little bit on the arbitrary side. I mean, I don't think it's it's fine on the one hand, you know, for me to, you know, I live in Pennsylvania, Texans usually really love Texas, you know, that kind of thing, and to kind of be have an affinity for, you know, whatever that group is called. But I don't personally have this affinity for America in the sense that, you know, if that if it's that or flourishing in some other way, I'll I'll take the flourishing any day. And you're right. They don't have to be tied together, whatever the, the means are there, because, you know, you can you can flourish in other ways. People trade creates wealth. And so, you know, Pennsylvania and New York don't need to be one unit to flourish. They can still trade together and they can still flourish and, and be better off. So I want my children to live in a world and my grandchildren to live in a world that's free. I don't necessarily have an affinity for, you know, these you know, the 50 states of America. So what about something like the national anthem? I mean, we go off into sports games and whatnot, and we're, invariably, if you you know hit up a football game or a baseball game or whatever, you're going to hear that national anthem. Is it proper to stand? Is it proper to you know pay homage in that regard? I mean, for me, I guess I probably will stand, but I'll probably just stand there. That's probably about it. I've, I know I've I've gone to football games in the past where I've I've stood and just had my hands at my side, and that's it. And, and it's not really giving anything more any more credence than it is, and that's it. Uh, what do you guys think? I think it just standing alongside people without 
drawing attention to yourself by remaining seated is a respect for those around you, which again is what we are kind of really defining patriotism is, is a love for those around you and, and so forth. So you're not drawing attention to yourself, you know, but standing itself, I, I don't know, you know, the whole placing your hand over your heart and weeping. Yeah. I don't feel like that it, there's that much to do. I mean, like you said, it's, it, I'm not trying to cause a stir. Yeah. I'm not right. trying. I mean, if I were, if hypothetically I were visiting some, you know, other religious house or something to that effect, which effectively that's what I'm doing to a certain yeah. extent during that moment, uh, I'm not trying to just like s- to mess with everybody right there. It's not really my purpose at that moment. But I'm also not going to participate at the level that they might want me to. Well, so, and you know, minimum effort. And, and I think that. If people realize that the Department of Defense was actually funding pro sports teams to the tunes of multiple millions of dollars a year for different types of marketing and things like that, like literally the National Guard showing up at pro sports events during the national anthem, like taxpayer money actually funds those programs. That's paid propaganda from the U.S. government. And this is I'm not making this up. This is like Google it. It's true. So, well, I even, do think that these these sports things, the the way in which the state involves itself, it's kind of like this. I mean, they even they even refer to it as oh, now we shall pay honor to America, or something like that. I mean, it, it's nothing. It's a religious ceremony, right? Sure. And it's also it's also paid propaganda with taxpayer money in yeah. some situations, like directly. So even that is just like on principle. I almost want to not you know participate in it but well, and it kind of assumes uh, that the only way to pay homage to you know the soldiers who died you know in wars past or the people who are willing to serve or you know to be thankful for our freedoms is to stand and put our hand over our hearts and hear someone sing about how wonderful america is i, I i'm not necessarily there's obviously i don't think there's anything you know, tremendously wrong with America in the sense that I don't like it here. I absolutely love my country in that regard and all the ways that we've been talking about. But to actually go out and say that there's only one way for us to show our respect is to do all of that is is a little bit narrow-minded. Well, you know, I think just from a bigger picture standpoint and when we as, what we as Christians really need to do is we need to really consider our allegiance to the kingdom of God and how that trumps our allegiances to any of the kingdoms of this world or any any of the ways of this world or the nations of this world. And that's the, the truth of the matter is we do have a dual citizenship. We are called to be followers of Jesus and called to follow the constitution of the kingdom of God. And then we live in, temporarily as pilgrims uh, passing through uh and those of us here on this podcast and most of the people who are listening to this podcast live in America. And there's lots of great things about being here. Uh, you know, we're not coming at this from a standpoint of like saying that there's other other nations that are so much better. No, the fact of the matter is, is the kingdom of God is the best and following Jesus is the best and the constitution of the kingdom of God is the best. And so as Christians, what we have to do is at any point at which the the nation that we live in and that uh, we are thankful to live in and that we are citizens of and whatever patriotic duties we feel uh, that we should carry out, any way that those things come into 
come to be at odds with what we're called to do as citizens of the kingdom of God and as Christians. Uh, the nation is secondary to that. And so, you know, we really, I think to the degree that we would understand that and that we would live that out, it would start to become very clear. Um, conscience and the Holy Spirit would work to move in us to help us to recognize the places where we are going to withhold that allegiance or we're not going to participate in that national sacrament. And that may uh, cause some grief for us. It may cause some criticism for us, but I think it might open an opportunity for us to talk about what we really believe when it comes to the teachings of Christ and the ways of Jesus. And it, it, it might open doors to actually talk about these things in a way people haven't heard of it. Um, I think Christians for too long have just been subservient to the state, have seen themselves as needing to carry out some patriotic duty, and have failed to recognize or remember uh, that, you know, Jesus was a revolutionary, and he did challenge the systems of this world, and he's called us to challenge the systems of this world, you know, the the governments of coercion and violence and uh, the politics of power. Um, that's why Jesus was killed, and I think that we need to recognize that we have that same revolutionary call, that we are to stand firm in the, in the ways of Christ and uh, in the kingdom of God, and um, that this uh, nation and this world is going to pass away. So there you have it, folks. We didn't want to necessarily define exactly what you needed to be as a patriot in this podcast, but one thing is clear. We know where our allegiance must lie in the end, and that is ultimately with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, with one God the Father. And so we hope that you'll never forget that, and no matter what you do as you're wrestling with these questions and as you choose to act in, in, in today's day and age, we hope you never forget that. So we'd also like you to not forget, if you want to reach out to us and ask a question or give us some feedback, you can definitely do that. You can reach us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com as well as on Facebook and Twitter. And of course, you can reach us on our website, libertarianchristians.com. Thanks for joining us today, and we'll talk to you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com.